Good morning, everybody. You know, those of you who've ever watched James in the front show when he's worshiping, he like throws it all in, right? He sings at the top of his lungs. And as I got up here and I thought I've got to talk for the next few minutes, I thought, how does he sing and then preach for three gatherings, like on any given Sunday sometimes? And I, I don't know how your voice holds up, but anyway, here's hoping mine does. It's a little bit weird being up here in a new capacity, but more overwhelming than when I normally stand here and say, come to City Woman. So I'm just going to get it out there. Come to City Woman for the next event. Shameless plug. A little bit about us. We've called this church home for about eight and a half years now, having joined just before we got married. We met at church when we were teenagers, and I eventually got it through this man's skull that I was the one for him. I'm I'm a little slow. (laughs) It took a good few years of patience on my part. We now live about a kilometer that way with our three-year-old Micah, who many of you will know because he runs around here on a Sunday morning like he owns the place. And little baby Elia, who's four months, and hopefully not giving Taryn Hodgson too much of a hard time in the parents' lounge right now. Our relationship can be an interesting place where opposites interact. Logical, creative. Pragmatic, dreamer. Reasonable, slightly crazed. (laughs) Introverted, extroverted. There's actually a story on that one. Uh, A couple of years ago, uh, I don't know. Bronwyn Sherry, are you in the room? Where are you? How long have you been married? Six years ago. We were at, well, I was at, not him. I was at Bron's Kitchen Tea Bachelorette Day, and it went quite long. We started with the kitchen tea, then we had the bachelorette, then we went to her house for tea and cake, and I got home at two in the morning. And I walked in, and I said, oh, and he was awake for some unknown reason. And I said, oh, this one says hi, and that one says hi, and this one has news, and I just went on and on and on. And at the end of it, he looked at me, and he says, I haven't spoken to a single human since you left, and it's been fantastic. (laughs) Needless to say, his word count for the weekend will probably be used up this morning, and I will have plenty still to spare. Speaking of, we were approached to share on a psalm that's important to us, and much like the many other ways in which we're different, we have completely different ideas of what kind of psalm we'd like to speak on. But then Malcolm reminded me of this one, and as I read it, it struck quite a profound note with me, and I knew this was where we needed to be. Many times before, you've heard people on the stage say that God used the message that they needed to preach to minister to them, and this was no exception. Spoiler alert, this is not going to be the story of us sharing a victory with you, having come out on the other side of something that God's walked us through, you know, successfully and looking past and going, he was so good. No, no, no. This is something we're still struggling with, that God is still working on in us, and a journey that we're on with Him and with each other. Today we're looking at Psalm 73, and before we climb into the text, a little bit of context for you. This psalm is written by a chap by the name of Asaph. He was the Jeff of David's time. If you don't know Jeff, he was the worship leader standing in the middle here a few minutes ago. Normally he's over there, so it really helped my case that he was front and center this morning. So Asaph was a worship leader in the temple and therefore a prominent member of the Jerusalem community. We find Asaph in this song reaching out to God and essentially just complaining that life isn't fair. To his mind, the bad guys are flourishing, living their best lives despite their sin, and Asaph was angry at the situation, even envious of the prosperity the wicked seemed to be enjoying. We'll be looking at the psalm in three sections as Asaph goes from ranting at God to worshiping him. In section one, we look at the grumbling complaint. 
in section two, the great turn, and then finally, the glorious scandal. I'm going to hand over to Malcolm now, who's just going to take us through the first few verses, verses 1 to 15. He doesn't realize I've already marked the page for him. There you go. My wife is always ahead of me, and she always has the first word. The last is up for grabs still. <laughs> All right, so Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace and violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and they speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and they find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease they increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So let's start by looking at Asaph's experience here. It's summarized well in verse 3 when he says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph is looking at the world and he doesn't like what he sees. It looks to him like the wicked people just have it so easy. They're just out there living their best lives, no consequences, no hard work needed. Verse 12 says that they're always carefree, increasing their wealth. The passage even says that the common human ills don't seem to affect them. Life is just peachy for the wicked, and that leaves Asaph pretty ticked. Like a child running to a parent, you can almost hear him saying, Daddy, it isn't fair. So, where does our experience come to all of this? Why is this psalm quite personal to us? Well, to be brutally honest, we're struggling with many of the same feelings that Asaph had. Some disillusionment, dissatisfaction, some things just don't turn out the way we hope. Situations may not seem fair. We'll be sharing some examples with you, and we feel that many of you may be able to relate in one way or the other. Unfair situations is something that I've been struggling with the last year or so with regards to Malcolm's work. To cut a very long story short, Malcolm's been involved in a project that has been incredibly intense and draining. He's many times come home late, exhausted, feeling defeated and stressed, only to return to financial stresses, a cramped house, a little boy who blames him for getting home too late, and a wife who's rapidly losing her patience. It's broken my heart to see how hard he has worked, the integrity with which he's worked, always going the extra mile, the hours he's poured in, and he's given his very best, but he's received no thanks, no well done, no financial compensation. Meanwhile, to my eyes, the wicked are out there benefiting from corruption and living in luxury while taking paychecks they don't deserve. Certain state-owned enterprises come to mind. It has made my blood boil, and I think many of us living in South Africa can align with that feeling. Asaph is jealous of the lifestyle that others are leading, and I must confess that envy is something I've struggled with for most of my life. I remember as a teen envying the other girls at school for anything from their popularity and talent to their clothes on civvies day. 
And I thought it was something I'd moved past until recently when all those feelings of jealousy came back in full force. Just before we got married, Malcolm and I bought a two-bedroom house. We moved in straight from our parents' houses into this house, and it was a dream. To have so much space that was all ours was amazing. But as time wore on, our family grew, working from home became a thing, and the house started to feel smaller. And then we found out we were expecting our daughter, our second child, and I began to dream. I dreamed of a home with enough bedrooms, with a study, with a lounge where I could host life group, a long driveway for all of those cars, and a patio where I could entertain all of my friends. But even as I dreamed, it became apparent that we just don't have the budgets to move at the moment, and for now we would have to make do. Don't get me wrong, I've always considered our home to be a blessing, and I've loved our time there, truly. God provided that home for us in his infinite knowledge, and we're not blind to that, and it's been good. But we are fallen humans, and so these feelings of dissatisfaction keep popping up. Simultaneously, while I'm feeling all of this, friends of ours were in the same stage of life as us, expecting their second baby. When she broke the news to me that they were moving to a larger home with a sprawling garden and place for a playroom, I turned green. I was happy for her, but I was so, so jealous. The first time I visited them, I cried the whole way home. I wanted that life for my family. I could picture tree houses and swings and all kinds of things like that. And my envy was making me bitter towards my friend. And please don't get me wrong, these friends of mine are not wicked. They love Jesus. I actually found myself being so consumed by the situation that I ended up talking to her about it and confessing my jealousy to her, which helped me process it and take it to the Lord. But I even started to look wider and notice many friends and colleagues my age who don't seem to have financial concerns. And it dawned on me that following Jesus can literally be costly. Malcolm and I made an agreement at the beginning of our marriage that tithing each month, each month was a non-negotiable. And I'm happy with that. I long to see the church grow and to contribute to it. But my treacherous heart looks at the monthly budget and thinks of that tithe that could be going towards a bond in the home of my dreams. How is it that the wicked seem to prosper? Or at least that's how it looks to my envious eyes. As for you guys sitting in the room, please don't think for a moment that we discount that sometimes in life people have genuine lack and that it might just be you right now in the season you're in. That it's not just about wanting more or bigger or better, but it's about genuine survival, putting food on the table and paying rent, getting through each day. In that place, it becomes even harder to see past the supposed prosperity of the wicked. But oftentimes, it can be that we are caught in the rat race, the cycle of making more, of keeping up. In that place, you find yourself searching for every possible side hustle. I keep wondering to myself, can I print something and charge for it? Can I string some beads and charge for it? I don't know, what can I do here? Where's my side hustle? And this can lead to increasing anxiety, stress, bitterness, disappointment, when your desires go unfulfilled. That bitterness can, bitterness can then increase when you look at the prosperity that others seem to be enjoying. In reality, you may not be struggling with envy per se, but there may be another matter in your life that causes you to grumble, as Asaph did. And the thing about grumbling is that it can destroy our souls and blind us to God's purposes and plans if we don't resolve it. So, we've looked at Asaph's complaint, our own grumbling, and the possibility that you might be grumbling to God over something too. There are many things Asaph could have done after his rant, including blame God and throw his hands up in the air, but instead he turns to God 
And that brings us to our second section, the great turn. I'm going to read verses 16 to 22. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I, pricked in, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Malcolm's going to carry on with us for point two. Thanks, Liz. And so our point two is called the great turn, because we're going to see in the psalm that while Asaph has grumbled and he's complained, something happens in his heart, changes, and his heart turns. And then we're going to share our story about how God continually turns our heart. Now, what happens in these verses is that Asaph explains that, in fact, he couldn't really understand or discern what was going on in the world. He'd looked around and he just didn't have answers. But to his credit, he goes to the Lord. He doesn't run away from him. He doesn't turn from him. He doesn't look to philosophy. He doesn't look to, um, to those around him for answers. To his credit, he goes to the Lord. He doesn't remain in a state of self-pity, and he didn't abandon God. He went to the temple, and it's likely that he dumped his frustrations at God's feet and demanded an answer. As a sidebar, I encourage you to do just that. If you're in that place, don't bottle it up. Go to the Lord. He's big enough to handle our grumbling and complaining. And as he did for Asaph, he can do for you as well. Mercifully, God answered Asaph, and he gave him a response which would turn Asaph's heart. But let me warn you that the revelations that God gave him are not easy to hear. I'm sure they weren't easy for him. They're not easy for me to hear, and they may not be easy for you to hear. The first revelation is that God's justice might seem slow to us. But the truth is that God never lets the guilty go unpunished. In verses 18 and 19, God confirms that he will in fact destroy the arrogant and the wicked. And that is truly terrifying. Sometimes we get so caught up in clamoring for justice that we don't recognize the seriousness and the severity if God really were to execute justice against those who are his enemies. And he promises that one day he will do that. We don't know whether it will be in this life or in the next, but God says that he will remove all of the prosperity for the wicked. And without Christ, they will have nothing. It says that though the wicked scoff and speak with malice and set their mouths against heaven, Jesus uses the words that we will all be held account to every careless word we speak. There's no protection against this outside of Jesus. This was sobering for Asaph, and it's been sobering for me to see how the Lord answers him, and I trust that it will be a sobering thing for you to hear as well. The second revelation was that Asaph had lost perspective. He'd become self-seeking. He'd become embittered, and he had lost his sense of gratitude to God. And in fact, he wasn't innocent after all. He thought it was only the wicked that were guilty. But in fact, his own heart had become guilty before the Lord. He says, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you in verse 22. To give you an indication, Asaph, if you just, if you just read through the psalm, 
Asaph uses the words they, them 16 times in the first set of verses. Then in the next set of verses, he uses I, me, and my 11 times. So you see where his attention is. His attention is on others and on himself. And we're only going to see that later his attention turns toward the Lord. Now what happens when we obsess about others or when we obsess about ourselves and our own situations? What happens is that we become endangered. We endanger our hearts. Our hearts can become hard and callous, not only towards others, but to the Lord as well. And this reminds me of the parable of the seeds, the parable of the sower. Jesus tells it, and he says that there's a sower who sows seed, and some of the seed falls on good ground, some of the seed falls on rocky ground, some of the seed falls on ground where there are weeds and thorns. And as those thorns grow up, what do they do? They strangle the good seed. And that's what the cares of this world can be for us. This, that, that can be when we're chasing something else, when we're looking at others. These things become a snare. They entangle us. They can choke us. And so we don't take this warning that Asaph received lightly either. In fact, we take it so seriously and we're sobered by it. But in the temple, by his grace, God rescued Asaph. He rescued him from his feelings. He rescued him from his situation. And he turned his heart back toward him. And you know what? He does the same for us. He deals with not only our circumstances, but also what's going on in our hearts. And so I want to talk for a little bit and share about what is it that causes us to turn back. Normally, it's simply a WhatsApp from James or Vaughan from the Lord that says, hey, Malcolm, you're stuffing it up like this. And then we're like, okay, cool. Done. No. It's never that easy. But there are three things we find that God often does in turning our hearts back toward him when we feel that we have gotten into this place where we're simply not paying him any attention. The first one and it may seem obvious, is be in church. For us, it's really important that we have resolved to be in church every Sunday. It's really helpful that we live one kilometer away. I will say that. And yes, it's routine. Some of you might say that it sounds like a duty or that it sounds like a self-imposed kind of legalism. But to be absolutely brutally honest with you, it's a blessing. It is a means of God's blessing towards us continually. Many, many times God has spoken to us and turned our hearts right here sitting in the seats. This is where he reveals his will. He gives us fresh perspective. He turns our eyes towards him. He gives us answers to the things that we've been praying for and asking for. He meets us. He meets us right here on a Sunday. Let me give you one example. Some weeks ago, Duncan was preaching on Psalm 4, and Psalm 4 is all about how you master your toddler's obedience and get them to do what they're meant to do. I wish it was. That would be super helpful. But that's not what the psalm was about. The psalm was about how David was in a place of distress, and God met him there, and God offered him mercy instead of justice. And so what had happened in the week leading up to this preach is that I'd had 
in four consecutive days, I'd had four massive blowouts with Micah, my three-nager. If you haven't heard that term, a three-nager is a three-year-old who acts like a teenager. It's a real thing. And so as I heard these words that God met David in a place where he should have received justice and God offered him mercy, it rent It rent my heart. Because I had been angry and impatient and I wanted to execute justice. I wanted to get Micah to obey me and listen to me and do what I said. Now the thing which you may not be aware of is that Micah's name actually comes from some verses in the book of the prophet Micah. Specifically, one of the verses is chapter 6 verse 8. And this is what it says. What does the Lord require of you, O man, but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? The very thing that I had prayed over him, that I do pray over him, that I'd hoped for him, that he would be a man who loves mercy, I hadn't been that towards him. I'd been withholding mercy. And so hearing on that Sunday that God is a father who offers mercy, softened my heart again to be one who would offer mercy. And this became intensely practical. It's impossible for me to have a fight with Micah now and not stop to think, what am I requiring of him now? Am I going to execute justice or am I going to offer him mercy? It's impossible for me to fight without having that run through my mind. And so it's a grace that God has given me. So Psalm 4, in fact, is about the obedience of your toddler after all. But so you see, the thing is, being in church is actually for the sake of your soul. And so I would ask you also to resolve to be in church. Resolve to be here, to listen to the preaching of the word, to be present in heart and mind. Right, to participate in corporate worship. I want to plead especially with new and young parents. And for anyone who's going through a season of difficulty or transition, you know, those are the moments where it's so easy to say, I'll get back to it. Things are too tough right now. I can promise you it is much more difficult to get back into that routine some weeks and months down the line. Because what happens is in that period, we drift. We find other solutions. We look to other solutions instead of looking to the Lord. And so what happens is that if you don't, get, if you don't stay in the routine of simply being around, then um, you grow in your sense of isolation. You can get to a place where you're in an echo chamber in your head and you're only seeing your own perspective and you're not having God's perspective. You're not allowing God's perspective to break in. You're also robbing yourself of the opportunity to ask and invite others into your situation to pray and to care for you. It is intensely, intensely practical. Some of you are going to object to this in the name of freedom of choice. You might say, but Malcolm, I'm free. And I would say to you, yes. So exercise your freedom to be here rather than to stay away. The second thing that God often does and uses for Liz and I is to pray, to read, and to study the word. 
Now, it seems pretty obvious again, but he really, truly does use this. There are a hundred ways that you can find life hacks. You can go to YouTube, you can go to TikTok, you can ask your friends, you can Google it, you can do whatever. But there is nothing like the truth that comes from the Lord. And there is nothing that, that carries that power. He is the only one whose truth and wisdom we can rely on. Some months ago, I was listening to an interview um, of John Piper, quite a famous pastor in the States. I think he's in his 70s now. And in this interview, he'd made some comments about things that he wishes he would have done differently from earlier in his life. And he said, you know what I wish I would have done earlier in life? I would have resolved to read my Bible every day. Sort of like, okay. And he says, I would resolve to always read the Bible even at the cost of breakfast. At the cost of breakfast. Because he says, if I'm, if I'm nourishing my body, why would I not nourish my soul? And so it's a small little thing, but it has stuck with me. And there are mornings where I've rushed out of the house, remembered that I'd prioritized breakfast over the word. And so I turn my phone onto the audio Bible and off I go. So that I don't stay away from God's word. The third thing that God often uses for us in turning us around, like he turned Asaph around, is that is the encouragement and exhortation of others who persevere in their faith. So we've been comforted, reassured, reminded, and strengthened by others who keep the faith, who obey and trust the Lord through all manner of difficulties. In watching these friends and family members, we see their faithfulness, but also God's faithfulness to them. We see both, and both encourage our hearts. There are friends who have struggled with loss and disappointment and grief. And seeing their faithfulness and seeing God come through for them has taught me that even if I do it imperfectly, God will be faithful as well. And so some of them are sitting in this room. The Sherry's, the Hewson's, the Musiwachos. My own sister and brother-in-law, I encourage you, find the people who faithfully follow the Lord, even if it's imperfect. Find those people who faithfully follow the Lord and emulate them. Instead of comparing yourself to the wicked who seem to prosper and have everything, compare yourself to those who follow the Lord and imitate and emulate them. When we set our, our eyes on those who follow the Lord, our hearts gravitate in the same direction. Our desires start to turn from the desires of the world to the desire to please the Lord. And that is a beautiful thing. And so just to summarize quickly, what are the three things that God has used for Liz and I? He's used being in church. He's used just being in his word. And he's used seeing other people who love him and serve him. And so let's talk about part three. Let's talk about the glorious scandal. That which, this is the place Asaph went to after God had turned his heart. Now, first of all, I want to say that it's probably tempting to jump to a conclusion about what the scripture is going to say, when in fact it doesn't. It's really tempting to think that the scripture is going to tell us to be content and to be grateful for what God has given. And there are plenty of other places in the scriptures where God does tell us to be content. 
And he does tell us to grow our sense of contentment and gratitude towards him. But this psalm says something else. This psalm says something that is less obvious. It's more glorious. And it's in fact scandalous. Because this psalm promises, promises to us joy, not merely contentment. So I'm going to read for, for us from verse 23 to the end. This is what Asaph says after his heart has been turned. He says, nevertheless, I'm continually with you, that being the Lord. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you, O Lord? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. But you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all of your works. Maybe you'll notice the theme of God's presence in these verses and how important it is to Asaph. Small wonder that we've been traveling through God's presence um, in the last few months here at City. But just let me highlight for you. Verse 23, he says, Asaph says, I am with you and you hold my right hand. You are close. Verse 25, he says, whom have I in heaven but you? Heaven's not about what I'm going to receive. It's about you and your presence. He says in verse 26, God is the strength of my heart and my portion, my inheritance. Verse 28, he says, it is good for me to be near to God. And so I think what had happened in God turning Asaph around is that Asaph had remembered the thing which he had, which the wicked did not, was God himself. And this changes everything. He remembered that he had access to God, that he could be near to God. He goes so far as to lay claim to God. That's crazy. That a man could lay claim to God and say, you are mine. But in fact, even when we read in the book of Exodus, we see that this is the way God encourages his people. He says to the people of Israel that you will be my people and I will be your God. There's ownership, there's covenant, there's deep relationship there. And Asaph remembers these things. And so compare that with what the wicked have. The wicked have plenty today, but in a moment it will be taken away and they will be destroyed. So Asaph remembers they have much today, but I will have much in eternity. They will have temporal pleasures, but I will have eternal pleasures. It is absolutely incomparable. The way I would sum it up is to say that Asaph has made God his treasure. And that's what he holds on to. And so I want to explore for a moment, what might your treasures be? And then let's explore what would it mean for God to be your treasure. If I had to ask you what would come to mind um, about what, what are your treasures, I guess there are a few categories. Probably there's a category of possessions, maybe a car, a house, um, maybe some important uh, jewelry which has sentimental value, maybe some books and photographs. There are possessions which you may treasure. I'd hazard that there are also some, there's also a category um, of investments and finance. 
Maybe your bank balance is really important to you. Perhaps it's your retirement annuity. There's another category, which would be family and friends. Surely you treasure your family and your circle of friends, and you would dread having to face the world without them to bring joy into your life. But you know, there's a fourth category. Maybe there are more, but there's another one, because the heart can sometimes be deceitful and wicked. And um, some of the deepest things that we treasure, we don't often articulate. Feelings of safety, the feeling of acceptance and being known, being validated, having achieved something, maybe even the feeling of being empowered or in control. These are things that we treasure and they motivate us on a day-to-day basis, probably more than what we would care to recognize and definitely more than what we would care to admit. And so what would it look like if God was your treasure? If God were your treasure, then possessions would simply become nice-to-haves. And they would become tools in your hands for God to use. You see, all of our possessions, whether financial or non, are gifts from God. But the true value to treasure God actually means that you know that God will never fail you as your provider. You will never go hungry. You will never be left alone. He will always be the one who provides. And so, for Lisa and I, we've had to remind ourselves of this constantly. That what we have is a blessing from the Lord and that it's something that we should, be, that we should steward. And that which we don't have now is either something which God has deemed in his goodness to not be good for us or to not be good for us right now. And difficult as as that is to swallow, we know that God says he's a father who gives good gifts. And so we continue to turn our hearts towards him and trust him for this. If God is your treasure, then friends and family will also be a blessing, but they will not define your identity. Jesus will. You will share your joy with him. You will share your sorrow with him. He can become your closest companion and the friend who will never leave and never turn his back. The two of us have walked a rocky road, to say the least, as it relates to friendships. Many, many, many people that we care about deeply have moved, have emigrated, have left from our lives. And it's been exceedingly, exceedingly painful. And we've been gutted. But we're learning that the Lord can even fill those voids. Not necessarily by replacing those friends, but by putting himself in their place so that our relationship with him might be deeper. If God is a treasure, then the opinion you care most about is his opinion and what he says about you. And when you know what he says about you, then the criticism of others, whether it be colleagues or friends or family, is a lot easier to deal with because you know that you're accepted by him. In Colossians 1, it speaks of what Jesus has achieved on our behalf by dying on the cross. And it says something absolutely scandalous. It says that one day, Jesus will present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, that being the Father. Can you imagine that? We will be in Christ before the Father, blameless, above reproach. We will be presented as perfect. 
And so all of those deep-seated feelings that we have in our heart, the things that we cling onto and treasure, but we know that we're actually imperfect, when we stand before him on account of Christ, we will be perfectly accepted. It's a constant battle, but I have to remind myself in times when I feel, or even worse, when I know that I don't cut it. When I know I'm not a good enough son, or brother, or husband, or father, or friend, or employee, or leader. When I know I don't cut it, I take rest in the fact that in Christ, one day, I will be treated as though I was perfect in each of these categories. He will say to me, well done, good and faithful servant, on account of Christ. And this is a benefit of making God your treasure. It's scandalous. It's utterly scandalous. I'm reminded also of Jesus' words in Matthew, where he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And Jesus tells the parables of the kingdom. And he says that the kingdom of God is like a man, a merchant in search of fine pearls. And when he finds one of infinite value, he sells all that he has to buy that pearl. He says the kingdom of heaven is like someone walking in a field who finds a treasure of great value, leaves, sells all that he has to buy that field. That's what it's like to understand that God can be your treasure. And you see, this is simply the gospel. It's simply the good news, the good news that we get God. In Christ, we get him. Salvation means that God is available to sinners like you and I, to sinners like Asaph, who, yes, he saw the sin in others, but he had sin in his own heart that had to be dealt with. And so what Asaph is rejoicing in in these verses is simply the gospel. It's glorious, and it's scandalous. And so as I wrap up, I don't want to underplay that we see injustice, we experience envy, we experience frustration on a day-to-day basis. But on account of God continually turning us from grumbling, we can learn contentment, but more than contentment, we can experience glorious joy on account of the presence of God in our lives when we make him his treasure. In fact, often we're destination-focused. We're the end goal-focused, but God is focused on the journey, saying, let me refine you, let me change you so that you value me more than you value anyone or anything else. And I feel like God is is definitely focusing or taking me on that journey with regards to our house, that if it had been like, oh, we're expecting the second baby, and boom, there's the, the house with the extra bedroom, Um, I wouldn't have been turning to him, leaning on him, waiting for his guidance in terms of where we go next. And the whole time we were preparing this, I had a song that kept playing in my head. Now, if you are like me, your brain is more musical. I always say my life should be a musical because I'm singing as I go every day. Um, But maybe you'll remember this song as you walk away today. And maybe that will minister to your heart over the week. Some of you may recognize it. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And so as the band closes us off, we would simply implore you, to do what we have to do continually. Turn. 
turn to Jesus, whether it be the first time or the hundredth time or the hundredth time this week. Turn to him. Make God your treasure. Make God your portion. Trust in Jesus and his death and resurrection on your behalf. He will be not only your portion, but he will be the strength of your heart from day to day. He will enable you to, joy, to live with joy in the midst of injustice and with satisfaction that will replace sins such as envy and striving and comparison.